You're listening to Clever Women Co., our podcast where we chat about all things business, career, and entrepreneurship. I'm Gal Cron, and as always, I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, M. Kaplan. Hello, hello. On this podcast, we ask the big questions so that we can really delve into the minds of the people you want to hear from. Listen closely because every episode is so different and full of insight that you might just walk away with that one little tip you needed to take that next step in your journey. It's the conversations you wouldn't find anywhere else, so let's get into it. On today's show, we chat to Brie Johnson, founder of Frank Body, a now global skincare brand famous for its coffee, body scrubs, and cheeky personality. In 2013, and together with four co-founders, Brie started the business with $5,000 and ingredients you could probably find in your kitchen. 10 years on, and Frank Body is now a company worth $100 million and is deeply ingrained into the households of many across Australia and the world. Brie, who is actually a copywriter by trade, knows her way around a word or two and is also the co-founder of Willow & Blake, a branding agency that was born back in 2010. She is also a former acting editor and is responsible for creating over $1 billion worth of brands you probably know and love. Brie is a creative at heart and a businesswoman with over 14 years experience. She brings a very unique perspective to the beauty industry and believes that brands have a much bigger purpose than just selling product. So it's clear we have a lot to get through. Let's just jump right in. Brie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. God, I'm blushing. Thank you so much for that (laughs) intro. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for coming. We're so excited to have this chat with you. Brie, to begin, our audience know this already, but we love to ask guests, what are you listening to, reading or watching right now? God, okay. What I'm reading right now is Erin Deering's book, Mm. Hanging by a Thread. So we've known Erin for a long time. She was one of the people we looked up to when we first started Frank. Triangle was having so much success on Instagram. We knew her from around the track and now like our kids are at the same childcare, so I see her all the time. But I'm loving going deeper into her story and, and reading those words and, and really uncovering the backstory behind it. I'm actually trying not to listen to too much stuff at the moment. I'm one who's always had some, always has her earpods in her ears, like I'm always listening to music or I'm always listening to a podcast and I've been actively trying to leave my earpods at home when I go for a walk or go for a run or in my car or whatever I'm doing just to give myself more time to think. Mm. Um, I think it's a bad habit sometimes of trying to multitask all the time and often the best thoughts and most creative thoughts that I have are when I'm not crowding my mind with too much noise and so I'm trying to actively not listen to things to let myself have that space to have those ideas and let those ideas come to me organically. Same with watching. I'm actually not watching a show. We're really busy at work at the moment and so I don't recommend this but at the moment, yeah, we're kind of jumping back on the laptop after my kids go to bed. Mm. Um. It is the end of November. I know, it's such a busy time. Yeah, but it also is like nice to go on something like a walk or a run and not be consumed by, yeah. as you said, what you're listening to. Like I find the same, like re- more recently I've been going on walks and just like actually taking in my surroundings. Because yeah. a lot of the time when you're walking and you're listening to something, you're like tuned in. And as you said, your brain's kind of occupied. Whereas mm. if you're running and you're, actually taking note of your surroundings and just like being with yourself Mm. you're so much more connected to the outside world it's really nice and I think I got into a habit of every single time I went for a walk or every time I had a spare moment like if I was doing the washing I'm like I've got to find my earpods Mm -hmm. so I can listen to something um and like learn or be doing research or something like that and like no actually having just time 
to not listen yeah. to things is important as well. It's typical of business women though. Like yeah. we like to be busy and consume our minds and always be thinking. So exactly. it's important to turn off. And that's a great yeah. tidbit for our for our listeners. Yeah. And Brie, what's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this question a lot this morning. Um, there's a few things. I think I've actually always been quite adventurous. I think the most adventurous thing I think would be I went overseas by myself after school. I took a gap year, um, worked really hard for the first six months, saved up lots of money, and then I went to Europe and backpacked by myself because one of my girlfriends was going to come and then she couldn't, and I and I still went. And I do look back now and be like, oh, wow, that was actually really adventurous and really brave mm. to get on a plane and do it. And I remember I landed in London and I had no pounds. I just had euros because <laughs> I was so naive and young and, and didn't have, so I had to borrow euros. I mean, I had to borrow pounds to buy my train ticket to get me to my hostel. And I did a Contiki tour, which is so off-brand and so embarrassing, <laughs> but it was actually amazing. They have such a reputation oh my Contiki God, yeah. tours. Like it was definitely everything was, that you would imagine. Was, that yeah. in your, was those in your party, like party years? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, and like a completely different time, completely different world. Is there like a specific experience from that trip that you're like, wow, that was like so adventurous of me? (laughs) Um, I think like just, yeah, being a 19 year old girl and like staying in a hostel with eight other strangers in a room. I just look back and I'm like, that's crazy. I would never do that. (laughs) Did you stay in London the whole time? No, I did London. London, Then I did a little Contiki tour around Europe. And then I made some friends on that tour and I traveled with them. I went and stayed with some family in France. We went up to Scotland. Um, Then we went back to London, spent a lot of time in London. And I sort of traveled with them, but then traveled on my own for a little bit. And yeah, I think that was the, that's, yeah, when I think back, just navigating you know, the public transport system mm. and booking trains. And it wasn't dangerous, but if I if I had a daughter now and I'm like, oh, I don't know how I'd feel about mm. her just going off by herself when she's so young and trying it, but I'm glad I did. And I think it really did teach me a lot mm. about the world. Similarly, when I came back, I then went and spent three months in Guangzhou in China, modeling, again, living in a model apartment with sharing a room with three other girls, like learning how to cook and get her navigate not the public transport system, then we had a car that would take us to all the different castings and things like that. I was modeling over there, sorry for the backstory. Um, but no one really spoke a lot of English. Yeah. And so mm. just getting ourselves around, I think that was quite adventurous. Mm. And then more recently, um, we went swimming with the whale sharks in Ningaloo Reef. I don't know if you heard of that before. Oh, so there's only two places in the world you can swim with the whale sharks. They're not dangerous. They don't eat people. I just hear sharks. I'm like, oh my God. They're like, they're more like whales. Yeah. It's like big, beautiful creatures. I'll focus on the whale part. Yeah. You can do it in Mexico and you can do it in WA. Um, and so we went and did that this year, which was just, yeah, one of those kind of bucket list moments. Mm. It was really, really fun. Wow. Yeah. Just on your modeling career. Oh yeah, career. <laughs> small, small career. Small, small career. <laughs> How did that come about? How did you get into modeling? Um, I had people approach me on the street when I was much younger, when I was in high school. That happened kind of a few times. And then I think on the third time, my mum was like, okay, let's like explore this. Um, and there was a photographer, I can't remember his name now, but he was wonderful. And he offered to do my test shots um, for free and introduced me to the agency Cameron's, which I don't even know what they're called now. <laughs> um, and so I did that. It was never a full-time thing, but yeah. it was wonderful part-time money. And it was wonderful because it did give me the opportunity to travel overseas. Yeah, it took you to China. Yeah, what, to China. what specifically were you doing in China as a model? A lot of beauty work um, and a lot of catalogs. Um, 
I think I was never a high fashion model. I'm not like, I'm not that tall. I don't have like that stick figure body. Um, but I have a, had a face that was very commercial. Um, mm. And so I did a lot of like beauty products, actually. A lot of beauty products, um, a lot of bridal, did a lot of bridal. Mm. Um, and just everything. Like I think when you're over there, you're kind of looking to build up your book and make a bit of money. Yeah. Um, and so you're just doing whatever you want. Um, and then me and my husband actually went, who wasn't my husband then, he was my boyfriend. We did Hong Kong as well for three months, um, which was really fun. Unreal. Do you think the modeling days introduced you to beauty in a way? I don't know. Potentially. I, I, I It was interesting. Before I started Will on Blake and before I even worked at Broadsheet, I had a blog and I, worked, I wrote about fashion, which again is hilarious now I look back because I'm not a fashion girly. Like, <laughs> I like nice clothes and I think because I was in the modeling world, I was like, oh, I'm in the modeling world. I'll talk about fashion. And I did talk about beauty in that blog as well. Um, I don't think it was ever like, oh, I'm so passionate about this um I did love getting my makeup done obviously that's always really fun therapy and and like yeah definitely it is so relaxing and like the way they can transform Mm. your face so yeah definitely would have exposed me to a lot of that but and it did also expose me to the creativity that goes on behind a shoot yeah and seeing all the art direction and how you pull together a team and a vision comes to life and it probably did teach me a bit about how to connect with people and how you know advertising works mm. from behind the scenes. And if you can narrow it down, what are three words that describe your childhood? And can you maybe elaborate on one of those? Yeah. Um, okay. I think my childhood was complicated, um, but I was going to say complicated, free, and fun are my are my three words. Um, complicated because my parents were divorced, so I had two stepsisters on both sides. Um, and then me and my brother would bounce between the houses week on, week off. Um, so mm. a bit chaotic in that regard. Um, but the word I wanted to elaborate on was free. Um, and my brother said something really beautiful at my wedding. He said our childhood was an education in the art of self-expression. And I think my parents were very good at giving us this freedom to be ourselves. Um, we had so much time to play and just you know roam the streets and go to the park and be adventurous and in the backyard make up our games and have all these like imaginative play games and then even from a like physical perspective like lots of drawing and lots of stories and my dad now I've got two kids my dad's produced all this artwork and like books and things that I wrote when I was little and I'm like oh now I realize how much freedom and how much time they would have put in to giving us all those materials and encouraging us to be creative and have that freedom to do whatever we want and I think we're very lucky in that my parents weren't ever you know the parents that have put in these expectations like you must be a doctor you must be Mm. a lawyer Mm. we never had that they were very much we just want you to be happy um you know obviously they valued education and they valued creativity and they wanted us to be successful and happy but there was never any pressure I think to be anything other than what we wanted to be um and even now I I love it because I guess I'm arguably successful like financially but my parents really couldn't care less about that. They just really want to know if I'm happy, which mm. is a really nice perspective, I think, to have and to always come back to. Um, I guess my parents really did instill in us a sense of resilience as well from that um, and this idea of you know always relying on yourself and, and not necessarily being too affected by the outside world and being like, okay, if you know your values and you know what's important, coming back to that. Mm. So yeah, free, which is a nice word. And would you say you're happy? Yeah, I am. I've, God, my God, that's a 
Good question. I feel like there's been times in my life I've definitely not been happy. And I think everyone has that. And that's, again, something I've also had to learn. I think um, oh, as a tradition, as, as women, I think sometimes this happens. So as people pleasers, you're like, oh, I must be happy. or I must appear to be happy. And then learning that it's okay to actually say, no, I'm not happy right now. It's okay to be sad sometimes. It's fine to be angry sometimes. It's fine to be frustrated sometimes. So generally, I'm a happy person. Um, I used to put this label on myself of being the positive penguin, um, and I am very optimistic. Even in our founder group, I think I'm often the one that's yeah, trying to be the optimistic one, like it's going to be okay and looking forward. Um, but something I have been trying to work on a lot is being like, actually, sometimes I'm not happy and mm. being a lot more vocal about that and letting people know and not just you know smiling through it and pretending everything's fine yeah it's so much more difficult doing that as well like Mm. especially when you have that those tendencies of being the one that is mostly positive Mm. oh definitely so even more important for someone like you to make sure people know when you're not feeling great yeah Yeah, I was gonna say that like when you said letting people know Mm. such a big part because you could be so many things and just not tell anyone around you and they're trying to work with you and they don't know why you're acting a certain way Mm. and sometimes people don't even ask you just need to tell them you know and it's tricky I think there's still a balance you know when you come into an office you know you come in with certain energy and we really encourage people to be open and you know, you don't want to come in and just always be negative. Um, but I do, I think it's just that open conversation mm-hmm. to be like, no, I'm not my best. Or like, I didn't sleep last night. People are like, oh, why? And you're like, because I'm stressed. Mm, yeah. um, and I do think times are changing. Um, and it's really lovely, I think, to work in a place where you can have those conversations. Totally. Um, and everyone can have that and feel that freedom to have that conversation. I think it's a really nice shift that's happening in the business world um, and in workplaces and just in culture in general agree a lot more people are talking about the good and the bad and not trying to be so glossy and same with business you know business is great but it's hard and business never goes in a straight line it's up and down and there are days when I go to work and I am I love it I love what I do and I'm happy and the team working well and creative and I'm like flying I feel great and then there's times when I cry in the bathroom Mm -hmm. because I'm so stressed and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or I feel like everything's falling apart or I'm frustrated because something's out of my control and I can't fix it um and I think it's just, yeah, important that people know that there's ups and downs. Yeah, I agree with that, that businesses are changing in that way. I had a mm. chat to my housemate this morning. She works at Lululemon and every morning before they do like mm. kind of check-ins before t- shifts start. And it's like, okay, is there anything you need to like yeah. voice today? Like it just... I forgot how she worded it, but it's like, is there something you want to share that people should know on shift today about yeah, you? And great. it's beautiful. Like I, I've never, ever experienced that in working in retail, working mm. in any job before. So. Yeah. It's like straight to work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that's, a, that's actually such a good point. I think that's something particularly since having kids that now I realize a lot more, you never know what's going on at home. Mm. You, know, you never know if someone's yet yeah, what morning they've had or what kind of sleep they've had. And so just, yeah, trying to be a lot more curious yeah. about those things and understanding I think is really important we used to do a really cute thing just on that um on Fridays we used to have grateful Fridays we don't do it anymore really really to bring it back where we'd go around the room at Willow because we were a smaller team then and everyone would just say what they're grateful for and it was just a nice way I think to shift perspectives and for Mm. people to voice gratitude for each other for the work for the yummy cake they had like Mm. anything yeah like little things like that make such a difference so important they're really so important Mm. well also speaking of stress 
it's November, it's the end of November. How do you manage it at this time of year? Mm, it's a hectic. Um, we were going through our calendar last night, my husband and I, and mapping out everything that we're, we've got going on. Um, we're both the kind of people who like to bite off more than we can chew. Um, same as my co-founder, Jess. We're very... Um, want to have it all like you know this is saying you can have it all but not at the same time which I try to live by but then I also want it all at the same time (laughs) (laughs) and find it hard to say no so we take on a lot of projects um, which is fun and we like it and we do thrive under pressure Um, but particularly at the moment we're conscious that we've got commitments for work we've got social commitments we're trying to close like a lot of projects out before the end of the year and get a lot of things wrapped up as well as trying to plan for next year you know right now is the cyber period our holiday period which is our busiest period Mm. at frank where from business perspective we're making a lot of money but then we're also trying to plan for next year and set everything in motion um at the moment (laughs) what is my strategy (laughs) i have no strategy um (laughs) have no plan that's the plan (laughs) have no plan um my strategy at the moment is trying to do one task and just stick on it until I finish it. I have a tendency to bounce around from tasks and particularly trying to run Willow and Blake and Frank Body at the same time. If I'm not progressing with the task, I have a tendency to be like, oh, I must focus on this other task, Mm. which is not good. So at the moment I'm trying to block out time in my calendar and be like, no, you have to finish this project and you have to get that done by the end. And if whatever you've got to, like that's, that's enough, that is what it is. And then you have to send it off and keep progressing, which, you know, works some days, <laughs> doesn't work other days. Um, and then other than that, just really trying to lean, it sounds really lame, but really trying to lean into making sure I keep up journaling, keep up exercising, make sure I actually eat. Um, I am the person who has that tendency when things get busy, I'll get into my laptop and become a bit of a workaholic and then I don't be productive because my brain's not working properly. Whereas if I make that time to actually be like, no, you have to get to yoga or you have to get to Pilates, it's not even about a physical thing. It's about a mental mm. escape for me. I actually am loving at the moment saunas and ice baths. Mm. Um, I'm finding them a great way because you're in a box. You can't have your phone. You're getting like a sweat on and it's like an infrared sauna. So it's good for you, but it's also a bit of a mental detox. Again, like putting my phone away, just having that time to think. And then ice baths. I've never been like a biohacky kind of person, but there's something about them, like cold showers, ice baths, jumping in cold water. It really resets my brain and Mm. I'm loving that. Um, So just trying to make time for that. We have a lot of late night calls at the moment, um, which is also hard because it means I'm not seeing my kids as much as I would like. And so trying to prioritize the weekends for them or making sure I take just the morning if it's like, okay, we worked till 9.30 last night, so let's have the morning and drop them off at childcare a little bit late and have that Mm. one-on-one time with them. I'm definitely not doing it as much as I should. (laughs) It's a busy time. It is. It's a busy time. It is. At what point did you establish or kind of realize that you're a creative? Ooh, good question. Um, There's a couple of moments. I think I remember when I was in year 11 I was writing an essay for legal studies um, about mandatory reporting of child abuse (laughs) very specific and I opened with an anecdote um, like a story because I felt like that would be a better way to connect with people and I remember I got a really bad mark and my teacher was like you can't it's not a creative writing piece it's an argumentative writing piece you have to follow a certain structure and I remember being so angry and being like no 
I think this is a better way to connect with someone is to make them feel an emotion, which I can make them feel through a story better than I can through an argument. And you know, he was like obviously explained that he was just trying to make sure I got a good end to score and whatnot. So he was doing his job well. But I think there was a couple of moments like that where I realized when I was doing my writing that I had a way of writing that was maybe a little bit different to what the school system suggested was the right way. And so I think that was kind of an inkling. And then I think it would be, yeah, I guess when I studied journalism, again, I kind of realized even working at Broadsheet, which I loved, I would always sort of write my articles in two ways. I'd write one version that was, I guess, the more traditional journalistic point of view. And then I would write another version that was my creative point of view. And my editor at the time, she was really lovely. She'd be like, no, the creative version is better. You know, you should trust that your voice and your that style is is good. Which, yeah, then led me to starting Willow and Blake. So Willow and Blake, really, we each had our own blogs, I think I mentioned before. And I loved having my own blog because that allowed me to write however I wanted. It wasn't like I had to write in a certain style of a publication. I could write whatever I wanted. Um, we evolved Willow and Blake into writing about people. But so we'd interview people, I guess, almost like an early, early version of what podcasting would be because podcasts weren't big then. We'd interview people and then we'd write profiles of Mm. them, but we'd always write them in a creative way where it would be trying to go deeper and like talk about them or like get people to understand who they really were. Sometimes we talked about people we made up, you know, and that would be like, or someone like write a story about a person I saw in a cafe, just sit there and write. And I love that as a way to practice writing that was the first thing you just wanted to practice as much as I could but we kind of learned that people liked that way that we wrote and they liked that it was creative and they liked that it was different and we liked that yeah it wasn't going to be edited to within an inch of its life and we could write in the own way that we wanted so yeah probably started to think about it in high school and then realized it in my early 20s I would mm. say if you could go back would you still have studied journalism mm. I don't know. I think about this a lot um, because I liked I like study. I liked school. I liked uni. I enjoy learning. I liked the culture of meeting people and having that freedom to learn and go in depth. But in hindsight, I don't need that piece of paper for what I do every mm. day. And most of what I learnt, I think for journalism in particular, I really learned from on-the-job training. So definitely all of the internships and like yeah, having your own blog and just writing, writing, writing. And I go back and forth on this as well because when I hire people, I don't look at degrees. Um, I'm not trained that way. I much prefer to read their cover letter and get an understanding of what they've done there or look at their internships and what experience they've had or like what personal projects they've done. Whereas I know there's other people in my team who do look at degrees Mm. and do look at what university they went. And that is still, I think, something that people out there look for. Um, and it does show that you're committed to something and that you can see something through. So mm. I think there's pros and cons. Like I love education and I love, I want to be a constant learner. I think there's also, yeah, so many different options out there these days for different ways that you can learn. So if I had my time again, I think I still would do uni. I, I don't know if I'd study journalism. I, I Oh my God, when I started university, I thought I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, um, but then I really realised I didn't like politics, which is kind of um, important. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, and then I think if I had lived in Sydney, I probably would have gone down a more traditional, you know, worked in the Dollies or the Cleos, and that's where I did all my internships up there. Um, but because I was based in Melbourne, 
I went um, and started my internship at Broadsheet, which at the time was a really new publication. Um, I was very lucky. I started there as an intern, and then I made them give me a role as editorial assistant, and I was their third employee, um, or third, third full-time employee. They had a lot of other people working for them, contract-based and whatnot. But that was amazing because it really showed me the behind the scenes of of a, what then was it was small when I first started and it grew so so quickly mm. um, and I'm forever grateful to Nick Shelton the founder of that business and Caroline Clements the editor because um, she really they both took me under their wing and they gave me this opportunity and I got exposure to so many different elements of a business that I wouldn't have if I hadn't been able to join at such an early stage um, so because it was early yeah I kind of got to do everything you know I was editorial assistant so I was uploading all the content to the website um, I was coordinating the interns I was coordinating the writers and the photographers I was posting everything on social media I was putting together emails sending them all out so I got to see yeah a wide range of things and have responsibility for things that you know I might not have at a bigger organization mm. and I learned a lot there um, and it was really fun how did you land that internship to begin with I saw it, they ha- they used to, dist- they still do, distribute this physical paper um, and I found it in a cafe and there was an email and I just reached out. I think I would have, I sent them my blog, that's, yeah, and that was the whole purpose of, I guess, having a blog was then you have a portfolio to send and when you apply for jobs, you're like, here are some things that I've written. Um, so I sent them the blog, had an interview, yeah, and just, I started as an intern and then I just sort of, I read this book called How to Make Friends and Influence People, um, which is like old school, but really good like and I think some of the lessons I learned in there are still true but I just sort of made a little hole for myself in the business Mm. I just sort of started taking on more responsibility I was always like yes I'll do this yes I'll do that you know I was working for free um but I always said yes and I just started to use my initiative I think um and see what gaps needed to fill and I would fill those gaps so then when I wasn't there there was a little breed-sized hole (laughs) you missed me that's a book that we come back to like every year. It's there are so it. many incredible lessons in there. The yeah. one that always stuck with me is to always remember like someone's name and then like one thing about them that they've told you and yeah. then you can always refer back to them and I don't know, it's just they know that you cared about the conversation you, that you had with them. Yeah, oh my God, you yeah, listened. I remember I would go to my internship and I'd have a conversation with Nick and then I would write down like little things. Yeah. And so then next week when I came back, I would be like, oh, last week you were doing this. Like, how did yeah. that go? Yeah. Um, just to remember and like, yeah, show that you care. And show that makes such a difference. Yeah. It does. When you show people that you actually listened, mm. so different to just hearing. 100%. But that's I'm great totally initiative good. by you at such a young age as well. Oh, thanks. Well, that, I think it's like what I'm hearing is you did all, you, even in the modeling days, being exposed to beauty and shoots and then in broadsheet, being exposed to people and mm. writing, all of that really came together Whereas if you just went to uni and maybe studied a business degree, knowing you'll be a business person later, it's not always so linear. Exactly. Like maybe you would have been more rigid in how you looked at it if you went and studied just business and not the creative field. Now, how did Willow and Blake come about in all of this? So, yeah, we had the blogs um, and then we won a competition, actually, um, to have a website built for us. So there was Jess, Erica and myself. So Jess, Erica and me, we all lived in Elwood in this house that we shared. Um, and we like, yeah, we started this blog, basically. We each had our blogs and we started a blog, Willow and Blake, and we taught, wrote about people. Um, and that was more of a creative project for us. As I said, it was a place to house the words in our head that we couldn't put anywhere else. Um, and we started to get some freelance requests for writing. 
And so we're like, okay, there's something in this. Um, and at the time I was working at Broadsheet, Jess was working at Cassette and Jess, sorry, Eri was working at Cassette and Jess was working at a music agency, 360. Um, and I didn't really realize that copywriting was, I guess, a way you could make money. Mm. But at Broadsheet, as well as working on the publication, I also did copywriting on the side um, to help business make money I guess um which is again good exposure because then I realized that oh like you know there's writing there's journalism there's creative writing and there's copywriting like writing articles like bro copy for brochures um or like for properties and things like that um and I think Jess and Era had similar experiences and so we started yeah delving into this idea of copywriting uh we started with one small client a lot of hustle um we saw a gap in the industry to really focus on words there was a lot of creative agencies at the time, a lot of branding agencies, but no one really focusing on the written word. And that was what we were passionate about. So now we're a full service agency. So we do everything from brand strategy, naming, tone of voice development, copywriting, visual identity, design. And our design is equally as good as our copy. Um, but as we were three copywriters, that's what we started with. We really started with copy. And social media, actually, back in the day, was really still in the early phases of brands starting to get on social media. And because we were young and... I guess, fearless, we were like, we can give that a crack mm -hmm. um, and we can work that out and really delved into it and were able to grow quite quickly um, on social media for Will and Blake and then also for our clients. And so that was also a bit of a niche that we got into and it just grew like a lot of hard work, a lot of hustle. I think one of the reasons it grew as well is we didn't just invest in our clients' branding, we invested in our own branding. Um, which is important, obviously, for Frank and for Willow. And I think important to think, I think a lot of people think about products when they think about brands, but services, they also need brands. Mm -hmm. um, and so Willow and Blake has its own really strong brand and we knew what we stood for and we wanted to do things a little bit differently and stand out. So yeah, that's that business is still, we still got that one today and I'm so proud of it and how it's grown and continues to push the boundaries. Why the name? Oh, it's not actually that great, this story. Um, <laughs> we tossed around a lot of different names. Ari actually was going to use it for another... She, when she was working at Cassette, she was coming up with a name for a bridal business and she wanted to call it Willow. And then she's like, oh, we need a hard word to pair with mm. it. So Willow was a soft and then we paired it with Blake. But then they didn't want it. And so we were like, oh, maybe we want it. We we're going to call it The Attic because that's the name of the apartment that we all kind of lived in. Um, but when we looked at SEO and we, we looked at the memorability of it, we're like, it's not really ownable. Um, we liked, oh my God. And the other name we almost talked called, it was Trez Quills, which is awful. <laughs> I have no I, idea what that means. Sounds so like sophisticated. Like old, like, you know, like the old oh, yeah. school, oh, yeah. like three writers. Oh, which I, is so bad. <laughs> so, so bad. I'm so glad we ended up at Will and Blake. But we liked it because it sounded professional. It sounded almost like an, like a law firm or like an agency that was bigger than what it was. Yeah. You know, if we had gone with Trez Quills, it's just like, oh, three writers is kind of cute. But we're like, no, we want it to be big, we want it to be professional, we want it to be different. So that was how we got to Willow and Blake. So you really had the foresight, even thinking Willow and to, I like that you said to pair it with a hard word. Mm. That's really interesting. I've never heard that like that before. Yeah, I think when we think about naming, there's a few things we always think about. I get an ownability is, is one of them. It wasn't, we also wanted to like, yeah, sound nice. And we wanted to think about the emotion or, or what it makes you think. So yeah, if it had just been Willow, we're like, that's a beautiful word, but it's sort of too soft. And we wanted the grit from the brand of Blake. Um, and also like, we didn't want to do well, three females, but we never wanted to be a purely female centric brand. Mm. Um, we do work on a lot of beauty clients and fashion clients, but you know, we also work on automotive and BMW and like bigger, more masculine brands as well. And so we didn't want to be pigeonholed. And so having that hard and soft, I think was important for that. 
Do you remember any of your early clients that you wrote for, even for free? Oh, so many. So, so many. Any, anything specific that comes to mind or is memorable? Heaps. Um, I think like one of our biggest jobs, we worked for Fiji Airways, um, which was, yeah, we did a lot of white labeling. And so we bigger agencies would contract us to you know, white label mm. our business. And so we got exposure to write for these big ones. So we wrote, yeah, like an, an ad, like I think it was a radio ad. Fiji Airways, that was great. Lee Jeans was one of our early clients, um, which was amazing. We did all their social media and these amazing campaigns for them. Um, Jelly Bean Shoes is the one we always talk about. Um, so that was one of our friends. And he'd ordered, I think it was 10,000 units or something of these little plastic sandals. Oh my God, I remember those. Yeah. So like those Years ago. Used to be for kids. I had them. Like adult ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he came to us and was like, oh, we need to move these. So we did all of the social strategy for that and big campaign. And, and that was, I guess, one of our first case studies that were like, okay, cool. This works, this social media. Mm. We can build a brand this way and, and market it and you know, he took a risk on us. And then we worked with him again on Mr. Miyagi, um, which is an awesome Japanese restaurant in South Yarra. It's always funny when people ask me like, oh, what clients do you have? I'm like, we have lots. Now I yeah. can't even think of any. My mind has gone blank. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you narrow down all of those brands? And there's obviously so many more. Yeah. yeah. So these days we work with a few tiers. You know, we work with like those bigger tiers. So like the BMWs, bras and things, Sea Follies, um, that kind of level. Then we have a lot of startups um, mm. and we love startups. You know, we have such a soft spot for them. So we either work with people who are starting from scratch and creating their whole tone of voice, brand identity from the beginning, or often we work with people who are going through a rebrand and then we work with people on campaigns. So like yeah, bras and things in Seafollow, for example, that's a lot of copywriting for monthly campaigns or quarterly campaigns, looking at how we translate all of their messages for all their different touch points from social media to emails, in-store, anything like that. Mm. Well, all of this obviously helped in your creation of Frank Body. So mm. can you talk us through how that came about with everything already going on for you at the time? Yeah, so um, there's a few different ways Frank Body came about. There's, there was, God, what was it? There was five co-founders in the beginning. So Jess, Ari, myself, my husband, Steve, and one of our great friends, Alex. And we all wanted to work on a business together. Um, we'd seen the success at Willow and Blake of some of those examples like Jelly Bean Shoes and how you could market a brand on social media. Mm. Um, my stepsister Greta also had a brand called Skinny Me Tea. I'd seen so much success from that. We knew there was a big opportunity here. My husband is very entrepreneurial and he's always thinking of ideas and he had these two ladies come into his cafe he had a cafe in port melbourne at the time and they asked for little coffee grinds told him they're using his body scrub um and he was like okay this ticks all the boxes we were looking for a product we could market through social media predominantly targeting women interested in health and wellness and we're like this could be it so he told us and we went and did some research we're like okay there's nothing really on the market um there's a lot of diy recipes but no one packaging it up or putting a brand behind it or selling it so very traditional startup story. We got the coffee. We lived, me and Steve lived above the cafe at the time. And so we got coffee from downstairs. We got salt and sugar from the kitchen cupboard. We got oils from my beauty cabinet. Mixed it on the kitchen table. He mixed the first batch. I tried it in the shower. Felt ridiculous. <laughs> covering myself in this coffee and like making a huge mess. But had that moment of like, okay, my skin feels good. This is fun. This is different. We like to call that the Frank effect. We're like, oh, there's something in this. And so Jess, Erin, and myself really took the lead on the brand and marketing side. And Steve and Alex really took the lead on the dirty side. So like physically making the product, mm -hmm. working out how we we're going to do all the operations and, and get it out to people. Um, there was a few like key moments that we always talk about. We wanted to have free shipping. 
Um, and so Steve had the idea to put it in the old coffee bags so we could make it flat. Mm. You could put it in a large letter, which I think was genius because A, we could offer free shipping, but B, it gave us packaging that was completely different. Um, there's a lot of brands now that do have those sachets, but at the time, most beauty products came in either a tube or a jar or a bottle. It was a very different new thing. So it gave us a really unique look and gave us a lot of presence, particularly on social media. You needed like yeah, two things, the physical product, the coffee scrub showed up beautifully on skin and B, the packaging was something unique and different. And particularly on Instagram, which was the platform of the time, um, not TikTok, Instagram, like 10 <laughs> years ago, guys, so stay with me. <laughs> um, you need it to look visual. Um, again, we were very lucky with our timing. I like to think strategic with our timing. There wasn't a heap of brands playing on Instagram. And so we knew that we could get into the market without spending a heap of money. It's very different these days. You know, as we say, like $5,000 these days, like... <laughs> And also so many businesses start up these days. There's so much more competition, 100%. So, yeah, I do think there's still opportunity. You know, if I was doing it these days, I'd be like, okay, what can I do on TikTok? Mm. You know, there's, I think, that same kind of energy there. Mm. Um, It's like still the early days. Still the early days. Um, So, and then even with Instagram and influencers, this was still the time when you could send the product out to people and they just try it and post about it for free. Which... And yeah, when they post about it, people actually follow the brand from that. Hundred <laughs> percent. We would we would see a post. We would we had it was almost all on Shopify. We would see a direct return, like we'd see the sales come through. It's not like that anymore. Mm. Now I think of influencers a lot more about brand awareness and that top of funnel. I hate saying funnel, but I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Mental availability, top of funnel. Um, see them more for that. So yes, that's the snapshot. We started very DIY, literally making the product by hand. We scaled up. We got our friends and family. Um, so Steve, my husband, his parents would come and like literally mix the coffee scrub for us during the day. They got their friends. We expanded to having a little warehouse where everyone was making it by hand. Um, then we got a manufacturer, thank God, um, <laughs> because we're coming up to Christmas and we would not have survived. How long has it been from when you started to when you got a manufacturer? <sighs> I think we launched maybe in June. I think it was six months. It was very quick, but I have to stress this, like our trajectory was not normal. <laughs> we grew very, very quickly um, and we we're very lucky. Um, obviously, very we worked really hard, so that plays into it as well. Um, but yeah, we grew really quickly. So then we were able to afford a manufacturer and to mm. afford the minimum order quantities. And, you know, we expanded very quickly. And now, yeah, 10 years later, we're a global brand, mm. big team, nearly 40 people over 40 SKUs, um, a lot of learnings and a lot of up and downs, as I said before. Like, business never goes in a straight line. It's been an incredible wild ride, but it has been hard at times. Yeah, what well, was maybe your first kind of, because it sounds like there was like a lot of upward momentum. Mm. What was your first kind of dip or like your first really big challenge with Frank? I think, um, to be honest, one of the, the first big challenge was the first time we went to raise money. So we were again young and we had a lot of early success and so we had a lot of people reaching out you know we call them sharks kind of circling being like we want to invest we want to give you money and at the time we knew we wanted to grow um and we were like hey people are reaching out to us let's see we wanted to use the money to grow into retail and to do that and going into retail does require a lot more upfront capital direct to consumer you can be a lot more scrappy whereas when you're going into retailers you need more stock you know there's a lot more risks so having some capital behind you makes sense. Mm. I think what we did wrong was we didn't really know what we wanted. And so we're like, we'll let the market decide and let the market tell us. And also all of us were focused on it. Um, Mm. And we lost focus on the business. 
so we kind of went on this wild ride and it really took us away from the business and we got easily influenced by what investors were telling us we should do or what we shouldn't do and we're like oh they know more than us and I think that was the first challenge and then the deal we had on the table fell over um, which at the time was devastating um, because we'd kind of already started spending the money that we didn't have mm. thinking it would come through so that's the other lesson a deal is not done until the money hits your account and it's all signed even like we were so close to it being signed and then it fell over and you know at the time it was devastating. Now you look back and you're like, it was actually a pivotal moment, an important one, because you learn from that and you grow from that. And I do think entrepreneurs, that resilience is what defines you um, and how you react in those times and how you pull yourself up and get back and keep going and keep the business going. And so we did, yeah, we got investment after that and we kept growing. But that I think was, yeah, one of the, definitely one of the most challenging times. Mm. And can you speak now to your personal life motto, risk it oh, for yeah, the biscuit? Oh yeah, risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> so, risk it for the biscuit is my life motto. I had it on the back of a, um, a jacket and <laughs> It's interesting because as I get older, I've become a lot more risk adverse. And so this is why we really wanted to cement it as one of our guiding principles um, for both the businesses, both Will and Blake and Frank. Um, we have it on a big poster or painting artwork when you walk into our office as a reminder, because as we get older, we become more risk adverse. But the reason we were successful is because we took those risks early on. We did things in a way that hadn't been done before or we always questioned why why can't we try it like this so now we try to really instill that in our team because yeah as you get more retailers on board you get more team members on board we have kids now we have mortgages it becomes harder and harder to take risks um and so coming back to that reminding myself that that's important i think is is, is yeah where that kind of came from there's a line you know risk is important you can't be reckless mm. um but you also have to and you have to have people in the business who balance you out, which we definitely do. You had us, just us founders. <laughs> I don't know where, we, where we'd be. You need people to pull you back sometimes. Um, but I do think, yeah, being brave and, and trying things different is where that kind of really comes from or really the heart of what I want to get out of that saying. Now, you mentioned five co-founders. We said that in the intro as well. How does that come together when you're trying to make decisions and yeah. still stay afloat with relationships and friendships around you yeah it's it's tough so Ari left the business so now there's four um co-founders but yeah Steve's my husband Jess is my best friend Alec is also one of my best friends um and it's been hard at times we <laughs> I haven't had any crazy big fights I think we've been very fortunate there's a few things we always go back to the first is always assume positive intent so I learned this from the Warby Parker guys. We heard them talk mm. and they were similar. They had I think, three or four co-founders and they were like, you know, when you get an email from your co-founder and they're ranting at you about something that's in your department, don't assume that they're just coming at you because they want to make your life worse. They're coming, they're coming to you with this because they want the business to be the best it can be. And so assume positive intent, assume that they're not out to get you. So I always try to come back to that. I, you know, again, don't always, <laughs> even this week, my husband had a, I had a go at him. Um, I feel bad sometimes for Jess and Boff because we are a married couple. And so they're like, mum and dad, stop fighting. <laughs> um, and there's a, a level of the way we talk to each other that potentially if we weren't married, we wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> we feel that strongly. Yeah. yeah, even though we're not married. Yeah. No, but like it's true. And it's, yeah. it's a good thing because I think that means you can have difficult conversations. Mm. Oh, 100%. And like one of our guiding principles is like, yeah, be open and honest. And like even when the conversation is hard, have those hard conversations. 
and I think since Eri left, we we really made that pact to each other that we would be very open, you know? mm. and like we've all thought about at times leaving the business, and when we have those thoughts, we just feel like okay, let's talk about it, mm. you know, let's let people know how we're feeling rather than trying to bottling it up, or pretending everything's fine. As I said before, um, and so it does mean like if if we have these hard conversations, we have a lot of respect for each other, and we try not to ever have those arguments in front of the team. Um, <laughs> And that's something I've had to definitely learn with Steve is just to be like, no, be respectful in front of the team. And then if I, you know, we need to vent, do it in a productive way, still mm. say the hard thing, um, but be prepared to have that pushback and to have that difficult conversation. And then at least it's out there in the open and you can work through it. The other thing we did is really try to separate out our roles. Definitely in the beginning, you're all running after the same ball. We're definitely entrepreneurs who like to chase shiny mm. things. So if there's a new project, we all want to be involved in it and go after it. Um, but having four people all trying to be doing one thing doesn't work. Um, so now we're very much separated into our different roles. Steve's CEO, Buffer's Operations Digital, COO, Jess's CMO Marketing, I'm head of new brands. So I work on the everyday project and we each have our own kind of lane that we focus on. We still collaborate and we still respect each other's opinions, but we yet yeah, try to delegate and Conquer and divide, I guess, yeah. where possible. How does it work when your husband is so closely working with you in the business? How do you not bring that home? <laughs> um, we do. We sit, it's actually hilarious, where we sit in the office. We sit like on opposite <laughs> sides of the room. Um, it kind of <laughs> happened unintentionally, but now it's that's just where we sit um, <laughs> so that we have space. Because we're opposite to a lot of couples, a lot of couples particularly once they have kids, don't get to spend enough time together. Mm. Whereas we kind of have the opposite problem where we spend too much time mm. <laughs> together. You know, we walk to work together. We, we do talk about work. We walk home together. We have date night together. We, we sit next. We sit in meetings a lot together. Um, and we like talking about work and we like brainstorming, particularly like in the morning, we often drop the kids off and take our dog for a walk through the park. And it's a nice way to bounce ideas off each other or test ideas or unpack things and and have more of those deeper conversations about work because it is there's a there's a blurry line now between us as a family us as business partners and how it all relates together and yeah there's definitely times when we try to separate when we're with our kids we try not to talk about work um, mm. which they're great because you just can't because yeah. <laughs> they'll demand your attention. Um, same as when with our friends. We don't talk about work when with our friends. Me and my sister, actually, we used to talk about business all the time and we got told we couldn't sit together at one stage. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we just don't really talk about it Yeah, that much when there's other people around because it's boring for them. They don't want to hear you yap on about the business. We feel that personally. Yeah. yeah. Our, our friends have, like, banned us, I think, yeah. at the beginning of talking about it. But No, but now it's gone to the point where it's like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, yeah. how are you? Yeah. Talk yeah. to me about you. Yeah. Exactly. So other content in my head. Yeah. But it's true. I think a lot of a lot of the time people say never go into fa- uh, into business with family or friends. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes it just works out so well and it, it's so nice. Like Em and I have been friends for so long before Clever. But that's why we can say anything to each other. We can be honest and so open. It's not like we just know each other in a business sense. 100%. And I don't know anything different. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously we have people who work for us that weren't friends but now they're friends so I I don't know what it would be like I'm sure there'd be pros and cons to both um Mm. and yeah I've heard that saying obviously a million times and I think it depends on the people as well and like there's obviously so many horror stories out there of relationships that haven't worked out and the pressure it puts on them and 
there is a lot of pressure, I would say, on a relationship. But as long as you have your priorities straight and you know that the friendship comes first mm. or the relationship comes first, I think that's the most important thing. Bree, in April of 2021, so a couple of years ago now, you did welcome China-based private equity investment partner Evie Capital, valuing Frank Body at $100 million. What led you to wanting to be partially acquired? What was maybe the tipping point to wanting more equity injected into the business at that time? Yeah, that came to us, interestingly. Um, we they approached you. Yeah, yeah, we weren't out looking for that. Um, we have an amazing friend, banker, Alice Wells. Um, she's incredible, Lampre Wells. If anyone is looking, you've probably heard of her already. She's, yeah, great. Um, they found the deal and came to us with it. They were looking for a brand like ours. It was like a nice fit and we were like, okay, well, let's let's definitely explore it. I think it was, I'm trying to remember now if it was during COVID or after COVID. But would have we been were, would have been a bit after COVID. Yeah, yeah, sort of just after COVID. And so we were like, okay, there's something in this. They have experience in China, which is a market that we don't have experience in or like that we're struggling to navigate. You know, we dipped our toe in the water a few times, but we're not afraid. Yeah, I guess afraid to make that commitment to a region that we didn't understand. And FEE brought so much experience in that field. They have had an investment over to Quiet. They did a full acquisition or they were just invested in Lime Crime, which is an amazing beauty brand. And they'd had a lot of success and that gave us a lot of faith. We really liked Susan, who's on our board. And we liked this idea of bringing a new member onto the board to create more diversity in the board, different knowledges. That's what we really, I think, were looking for from the partnership was A, obviously a nice capital injection, um, but B, that knowledge and a different perspective. Just for the listeners, what does it mean to be valued at $100 million? (laughs) I go back and forth on valuations. Um, You know, you can talk about multiples and multiples of EBITDA and there's a lot of different ways to value a business. At the end of the day, my husband said this to me and I really do believe it, that a business is worth what someone is willing to pay for it and what someone is willing to sell it for. And so that's really how you get to your number. Obviously, there has to be a business case behind it and a philosophy behind it, but it's forever changing. Um, and we've seen that through the beauty brand, with the beauty business and with Frank. We've seen that with um, Willow and Blake. I've seen that with angel investments I've made. There are so many different ways to value a company and it changes constantly and everyone has a different opinion but at the end of the day it's really what someone is willing to pay for it and what someone is willing to sell it for um but it did mean a lot that was a big Mm. goal for us and just while we're here is there any maybe vision or plan for frank body to go public (laughs) at all in the foreseeable future (laughs) no i don't think we'd ipo um i like i've definitely seen other brands do it and i'm like there's something interesting and i never say never um but not in the pipeline right now (laughs) and two years on after that capital injection how is everything going to be honest slow um we really focused our attention on the usa we went into walmart which is one of the biggest retailers in the us one of the oldest and with the capital that we had we really had to focus on that region and that channel as well as i said we like to bite off more than we can chew as well as here in australia we went into priceline this year um we launched our everyday range and so we've got a lot of different competing ranges. So we're still focused on China and we're still slowly growing that, but we're taking more of a test and learn approach. And just on Everyday by Frank Body, mm. can you talk to, because that's like another addition to the mm. Frank Body arm. And for, for those who might, yeah. might not know, it's kind of like an affordable version yeah. of Frank Body. 
What was the process to creating that? Yeah. So when I came back from mat leave, this was sort of my project. We had a few, we had an everyday range and it was two body washes or three body washes, two deodorants and a face wash. And we'd positioned it slightly lower um, because we wanted to give our customer price differentiation. We knew the economy was going into tougher times. And while we've always been affordable, like we like to think of ourselves as affordable luxury we had had feedback that, you know, for a lot of people, it's still quite pricey. And so we wanted to create more diversity in our pricing structure. And so my job was to kind of look at that range and pull it out and expand on it. So I basically came back and looked at the products that were the best selling um, and kept them, <laughs> got rid of the rest, and then yeah, broke it out into a bigger range and looked at widening our distribution. So we wanted to look at how we could reach a new audience. Um, so Priceline was our first step in that and going into pharmacy. Overseas, we've had a bit of experience in pharmacy. We're in Boots um, in the UK, but we hadn't done that in Australia. And so mm. we wanted to see what that would be like and how we could reach a new customer. So it was fun. It was a good project and it's going well. It's nice to be playing with a different color palette, be playing with a slightly different brand and tone of voice. It's very similar to Frank because we want to still be known as Frank Body and it's still part of that family, but it's slightly more elevated, slightly more toned down, not as cheeky. Is the audience demographic the same as Frank Body or is it? It is, annoyingly. (laughs) (laughs) You're like trying to reach another demographic? I was like, I really, I was like, maybe we can go after Gen Z. It is better for, it is higher in the Gen Z market and the younger market, but our millennial gals, they're our gal. They They know Frank. They know Frank. They grew up with it. I am obsessed with the clearing body wash. Like it it is, it also smells incredible. It's the one in the red packaging for anyone that wants to check it out. Oh, you're so sweet. Brilliant. Yeah, I remember when you told me so we, we went to the launch party at Baby Pizza, which was so fun with Every Day by Frank Body. And we got like this tube with all these body washes. <laughs> right. So funny walking home with yeah. that under yeah, the Yeah, with arm. that tube. <laughs> oh and then gosh. Em was like, girl, have you used the clearing body wash? And I'm like, no, I haven't used it yet because I have a lot of keratosis on my arms. Amazing. She goes, girl, it's cleared my skin, like body skin. And I'm like... Okay, using it tonight. It's great. And it's so affordable. Yeah, you guys are sweet. Yeah, that's our like our best seller, that product. It's like continually selling out, amazing five-star reviews. I do because it works. Yeah. You know, it's got the salicylic acid in there. People love it. So that's, I think, always going to be our hero product mm. in that range. And I love getting feedback like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did speak to the name, Frank mm. Body, and the cheeky personality, mm. which it very much does have. How was that created? Yeah. So... Again, funnily, when we first started, we were almost going to call it Piccolo, which is like a little coffee, Yeah. Um, which I'm glad we didn't because, again, too cutesy. So we wanted something kind of similar to that Will and Blake. We wanted something that was different, and we loved this idea of let's be well, – one of our brand values was honesty. Like, let's we want to be really honest as consumers. This is 10 years ago. There wasn't a lot of startups. Um, the democratization of beauty hadn't really happened. It was still these conglomerates that mm. were really dominating the market, these big kind of huge – faceless in a way, but more heritage brands. And so we wanted to be almost the antithesis of that. We wanted to be honest. We wanted to be transparent. We wanted to be real. And so we love this idea of Frank because it's got this double meaning. It's mm. a name of a person. And we can create this character, but it also means to be honest and to be upfront. So then we expanded to Frank Body after some trademark issues. Um, <laughs> but it was also good, I think, to give it more meaning so people would understand that it's a body scrub. Yeah. Body was, you know, high performance body care is still our position. Body is still our focus. But it was good. And I think it really did set the tone 
it's it was a risk you know there wasn't a lot of brands back then talking in first person now there's a lot more but it mm. did allow us to connect with our customers on a one-on-one basis particularly on social that was so important as i said there wasn't a lot of brands playing in that space so being able to talk as a person and say things in a cheeky way that probably other brands couldn't say really allowed us to get more attention um, yeah. and to build that brand identity really quickly. I mean, was it ever hard with the cheeky words? For example, like Frank says, get in the shower, get naked, and then put the body scrub on. Like, how do you use that advertising on Instagram? Yeah, hundred percent. My God, our like, <laughs> our little instructions are like, get naked, get dirty, get rough, get clean. Um, and for us, we did want it to be provocative um but have that double entendre and so we had to find that line and as we've grown up we've evolved the language and we have softened it um so that we're not being offensive and making sure we're being more culturally appropriate and all of those you know we're fierce feminists we never want to do anything to make people think otherwise um and so we have had to grow up and yet change some of our language but for us it's always just that sense check of like Mm. is it smart and clever and cheeky or is it you know offensive or potentially misinterpreted in the other way we do like to push the boundaries but never too far and our retailers are good at bringing us back you've previously mentioned quote when i started my first business willow and blake i was 21 Maternity leave wasn't a concept that I'd ever entered my consciousness. So we want to ask you, how have you been running all of your businesses and as a mum? <laughs> oh, God, I know. Um, it's hard, but doable. I think when I went on mat leave the first time, I had a massive identity crisis. I think as founders and entrepreneurs, your identity gets so mixed up in your work and what you do. And I wasn't worried ever about the businesses. I knew they'd be fine. I was more worried about me. I'm like, who am I if I'm not the co-founder of Frank Body mm. and Willow and Blake? Like, like who am I if I'm just a mum? Like, and so it was hard leaving the businesses. I actually loved it. <laughs> I went. I actually really enjoyed having that space to really focus on being a mum. And I'm, st- you know, when I say that, I'm like, I still had monthly board meetings with both my businesses, so I still was doing a board meeting basically every two weeks, um, and was still very across all the businesses. But nice not to be in the day-to-day and then when I came back it took me a little while I did suffer really badly from imposter syndrome and then you know I've said before you know I'd sit in these meetings and be like oh my god everything's changed so much Mm. I was only gone for nine months but I felt like the business grew in so much time and my role changed and it was really tough coming back a working out how to navigate it with a whole new set of responsibilities Mm. I used to just work until whenever I wanted you know I could stay up really late and work whereas then I was like oh my god I I have to leave like I can't just keep working I have to go and get my child I have to put my child down I have to take them to childcare. I have to make sure the nanny's there if the nanny's sick and as we know kids get sick a lot um in their first year at childcare. so I was battling that it does get easier so anyone out there it's it is doable and it is worthwhile and I'm a massive advocate for women coming back to work I think society needs to support them a lot better and the main thing is as always just talk about it more and really ask for help um you know we talk about wanting this village and I'm very lucky that I have a lot of grandparents support but a big thing I had to learn was to actually ask for help you know Mm. my mum's not just going to magically sense that I'm stressed (laughs) and need her to come I have to actually text her and say hello I'm struggling can you come take the boys for a while or work's really busy I need help my dad actually my parents are divorced and that is a blessing now because it means I have an extra set of two sets of hands my mum's got a new partner my dad's got a new partner um, and he's been incredible, um, incredibly supportive and has a really beautiful relationship with my son. He goes for sleepovers. He lives around the corner. I've got 
also in a very privileged position in that I can pay for help. We have an incredible nanny and we have an incredible network of babysitters. So we've always got backup options. Mm. Um, me and my husband both work at the same business, which presents a lot of challenges. Uh, we have to do a lot of coordinating our schedules. We have joint calendars. I'm not a traditionally organized person. So it's a whole other mental load that you kind of put on yourself is now, especially as they get older, you're like, okay, we have this party, but then he has this party. He has tennis, he has swimming, learning how to navigate that. It's just a learning process. So I think, yeah, the main takeouts for me is ask for help. And then if you've got someone at your job or your work that you work with or that you employ and they're coming back from mat leave, give them time, give them understanding. And if you're coming back from mat leave, yeah, just give yourself time because it does get easier. It was definitely easier for me the second time. Um, still challenging, but it gets easier. And the more you talk about it and the more you ask for help, the more help you get. And Jess and myself as well, I guess if you are a young entrepreneur, we were quite proactive in that when we were quite, I can't remember how old we are, but, but maybe at least four years or a few years before we started having babies, we both identified that we wanted to have a family. Mm. And that particularly for Willow and Blake, we were the two sole founders and we were very much active in running the business. And so we knew we had to find someone who could steer the ship while we went on mat leave. So we brought on our business partner, was one of my lifelong friends. He was our account manager. He bought into the business to help run that. We also started putting money aside, um, saving, so that we could pay ourselves mat leave, mm. um, which, again, like, we were so wise <laughs> to do that, like, thinking back. Um, so if you, yeah, if you have a business, it is good to, to future-proof and think about that because it's a blessing to be able to take time off. Mm. Um and, you know, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who don't, who just love their business or don't have that option. And they're like, I you know, took two weeks or like I didn't take any time off. And that's a choice too. I've seen people do that really successfully. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to have that time, even if it was just nine months and six months. I, I enjoyed it. But you've got to plan for it. Mm. Ray, can you tell us your biggest fear and what you think it reveals mm. about you? My f- biggest fear used to be that I would end up alone and not like my company. Um, but then I've done a lot of work mm-hmm. <laughs> with counselors and internal work on myself and even going on mat leave and like having more time by myself and COVID and everything. I'm like, actually, I'm okay on my own. And even if I don't have a business and I don't have, you know, my nice clothes or the blow wave, like I still like who I am at my core, um, which is great and like a really lovely place to be in. So now I do think it would probably be related to my kids. And mm-hmm. that would be my biggest fear that they would grow up not knowing me or I would not know them. Mm. That, that one hits deep. Yeah. yeah. Like it's interesting. Even like my dad, I got for him, maybe it was his 70th, this thing, it's called Story Worth. And it sends him a question every week and he wrote, and, and he basically writes a book. Oh, my Nana is doing Did that do as it? well. Yeah. I loved it. Cause I wrote, I like tailored all the questions. And so like, I got to learn so much about him mm. and I feel like we've always had a nice open relationship, but it just made me feel like I now know him on such a deeper level and I'm like I really want my kids to know me Mm. as a parent but also kind of know me really deeply yeah yeah Yeah. guys Brie might be coming out with a book (laughs) (laughs) imagine I would like to write a book one day Jess and me have talked about that I think you definitely should I would love to read that oh that's sweet (laughs) Frank is such a an incredible Australian startup story that became such a global brand I feel Mm. like a lot of people would be interested to read that yeah I think it needs something deeper I feel like um, you know, when you think about the success story, like you need also like that, like, and then something bad happened. Mm. <laughs> the dip. <laughs> the yeah. dip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, there's definitely something. Um, and I do think like 
Jess and myself are both very passionate about encouraging like that next generation of entrepreneurs, particularly female, but all entrepreneurs. Mm. I think there's a lot that we want to teach people or like lessons we've made because we've made so many mistakes. Mm. And like, as I said, the world is changing, but we want to try to put out more information where we can, whether it's in these podcasts or articles or books or mentoring so that people can, we can lift up that next generation and, and they can just get, continue to take over the world. <laughs> and that's also great that you have Willow and Blake. You could do webinars and people could get to know you from that sense as well already. Like you yeah. don't have to do that later on. Exactly. Is there a hobby maybe that you've always wanted to learn but have never had the chance to or yet or that you will do? <sighs> Ooh, that's a great one. I've tried and I need more hobbies. I really, really, really need more hobbies. I started doing watercolours um, and I actually quite loved that. I have said that I think when I'm older, like definitely writing is still a hobby, but it is weird because it gets so blurry now mm. um, and I don't do it enough. It's just write for fun. So that's, yeah, I want to get back into that. Um, horse riding, I would actually love. We went and stayed in the Blue Mountains um, in Walgan Valley, this great place. I can't remember what the hotel's called. Anyway, but you can ride horses there. And I just thought I'd be a natural I am absolutely not <laughs> a natural. <laughs> I had these visions of me just like cantering through the mountains and it would be like, you know, beautiful and I'd be great. Oh my God, I was terrified. I'm like holding on for dear life as we're like going through all these bushes. Like we went through like rivers, which was really fun. But like, yes, yeah, so I would like to actually have more time um, to learn how to ride a horse properly and enjoy it. Are you a good cook? Like, do you cook mm. and bake a lot? No. <laughs> My husband is a very good cook. I try. I'm a recipe girl. Um, I need to have a recipe. I buy my ingredients. I can improv a little bit. Um, I can have a few dishes. And then, but no, I'm very lucky in that my husband is definitely the chef in the family and he's a great cook and he loves to cook. That's how he shows mm. his love. So we love having people over and we like putting together big meals. But I generally do like the charcuterie board when people mm. arrive and then a salad and then dessert and the dessert is cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and the cake that I have bought. Cheese you can have I can have cheese for every course. Exactly. Exactly. Um I would like to learn better learn more about cooking um and have more time for that. Yeah. And if there's maybe one book you'd like to recommend to our audience, <laughs> what would it be? So many. Um anything by Brene Brown. Um, I think she's incredible. Yeah. I haven't read one of hers for a while, but that was definitely one of the pivotal books, her books, some of the pivotal ones that have kind of shaped who I am. <laughs> she's incredible, Brene Brown. She's yeah. got amazing TED Talks as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Brie, if our listeners want to support Will and Blake, Frank Body, find you online, where can they find you? Ooh, we're on Instagram for both, um, TikTok for Frank. And LinkedIn is probably where I post most of my content. Is there anything you wanted to say that we haven't asked you? No, I really loved this. I think this is a really refreshing conversation. Like it was so nice to uh, like talk about really different topics and yeah, hopefully there was something insightful or hopefully there's one little thing you can take out that you can learn something from or take and go forward with your day. Yeah, take one tip for your journey, yeah. <laughs> as I said in the intro. Exactly, that's what it's all about. I think that's kind of what we wanted though, is we really want to ask questions. Firstly, that you haven't already been asked yeah. before, so it's interesting for you to share with our yeah. audience, but also to, yeah, to delve into it and in maybe from a little bit of a different angle and find something that you can't just search on Google. Gull and I say that often and yeah. Yeah, we've really loved delving into this chat with you, Brie. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Thanks for coming on the show.
And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of these conversations with other clever businesswomen like Bree, please consider following us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts as it will really help us to grow the show more. And if you'd like to see some visual snippets of this episode, be sure to jump on our socials at Clever Women Co to yeah see Bree and us kind of in action on screen. Yeah. But for now, we'll see you in our next episode. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Like this episode? Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.